Does our faith enable us to be a good gift to our neighbors, even the neighbors we disagree with? Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Chelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 47, Don't Choose Shallow Formation. Today's podcast is made possible by The Writer's Advance. I'm a writer and I love supporting writers. Three years ago, I created The Writer's Advance. It's a writer's weekend and it's been crafted to be exactly what writers need to push forward their current project. It's not about networking or listening to experts speak or trying desperately to get an agent or an editor to notice you. It is about writing and reconnecting with why writing matters to you. Now, every event, I send all the participants an anonymous survey. You can read their words on the event website, but I want to read a few of their comments right now because they tell the story. They're writers who've come to this event, and this is what they have to say. This is from the anonymous survey from the most recent event in November of 2021. This was an amazing weekend. The hosting was on target. The venue was peaceful and offered more than I expected. I loved the pacing. Often retreats such as these are nice getaways with lots of listening to people speak, but I really appreciated the time to write and to wind down with points of contact along the way. Mark is a great host and a guide and provides just the right amount of encouragement and accountability. I am so looking forward to the next one. Here's another anonymous survey review from a previous event. This weekend re-energized my commitment to my writing craft. It was an excellent blend of accountability, flexibility, creativity, and guidance. I felt supported as a human and as a writer throughout the whole time. Sometimes people love the event so much that they will include their names in their comments. So here's a couple of those. This event was a gift to myself. I needed the focused time and also found direction from the coaching. I came away with a renewed passion for the stories I am writing for my family and some concrete ways to move forward. That's from Carol H. One last one. This is from Tara Rolstad, a professional speaker who has attended the Writer's Advance twice. Her words. I've come to see the writer's advance as a gift I can't afford not to give myself. I got more work done this weekend than I have in months, and to do it in a gorgeous, peaceful, comfortable location in the company and support of smart, quality people like Mark Attracts, invaluable. I'm deeply grateful. Well, maybe you are one of the smart, quality people that I attract. Or maybe you love a writer and you would love to give them an incredible gift to help them move their project forward. There are presently eight spots left out of a total of 14 for the Spring Writers Advance Weekend coming up April 1 to 3, 2022. More info, head over to www.thewritersadvance.com. You can learn all about it. You can sign up there. The link will be on the screen, in the show notes, and underneath the YouTube video. Recently, I was chatting with a small group of local pastors. They were from churches that were really different. Small, very large, urban, rural, different denominations. It was the first time I had seen any other pastors in person since the start of the COVID pandemic. And we were talking about everything that we'd been through as a result. Basically, we were telling war stories. And even though our churches were so different, our stories were very similar. Church members were angry because of the way their church was handling COVID. Angry if the church was online, angry if the church was in person, angry if they weren't enforcing masks, angry if they were. And then there was tension over the pastor's perceived political position. Even the most general call for compassion and care for vulnerable people would get you labeled as too liberal for the denomination, or one guy even got called a socialist. 
I know these pastors, all of them, all of them desire to protect vulnerable people, you know, like Jesus did. And almost all of them had church members who took offense at that. I've heard these same kinds of reports from pastors across the country. It seems like there is something happening in the wider Christian church right now that is not good. By not good, I mean not like Jesus at all. Now, I know, I know there are good Christians and good churches and good pastors. Maybe you have one of those great churches or you are one of those great pastors. That's all true. And yet, can't you see that there is a sickness bubbling to the surface in the modern Christian church? Among Christians, we're seeing increasing science denial, COVID denial, dogmatic refusal to take the vaccine or wear masks or do anything to protect vulnerable people in our communities. We're seeing wide support for intentionally cruel immigration policies, an almost rabid pursuit of getting anti-abortion laws on the books regardless of the cost or who gets hurt, and with very little parallel concern for sustaining the life of already born people. There's also a weird, deep resistance to talking about the historical reality of racial oppression and exploitation in our countries, even an unwillingness to take seriously the issue of sexual abuse of women and children in church communities and by church leaders. Come on, Christians are ostensibly people who've been taught to love their neighbors as themselves. These are people who've heard Paul's words in church that to bear one another's burdens is to fulfill the law of Christ. These are people who've been taught about God's grace and forgiveness, people who've read Jesus' words, whatsoever you do for the least of these you've done for me. So what is going on? Now, of course, I'll grant that there are great churches and great pastors and great Christians out there doing good gospel things. But even so, I think we're witnessing across the nation and even the world a massive failure of discipleship. Discipleship's that old word we use in church to talk about the process of learning to follow Jesus. And this process is not meant just to teach us churchy skills like you know, how to study the Bible or pray more. It's supposed to change our essential values. But it seems in too many cases that is just not happening. Early in the pandemic, my church and I read a book that offered an intervention on this front. The Deeply Formed Life, Five Transformational Values to Root Us in the Way of Jesus. This book isn't written by some ivory tower theorist. It's written by a pastor, Rich Velotis. He's the pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. New Life is a multiracial, multi-class, multi-generational, urban immigrant church that has had to walk through some of these very difficult issues. In The Deeply Formed Life, Velotis offers five values that he suggests we are missing in the church right now. Five values that the church needs in this particular moment. The book was really helpful to me and to my church, and so I asked Rich to sit down with me and chat about this crisis of discipleship. And I started out by asking him, why is this happening? Well, we're living in a CPR world. That's how I've tried to explain what's going on in our day, Mark. A world that is marked by COVID, political hostility, racial injustice, and the convergence of those things, CPR, is leading to us to have ailing hearts and difficulty breathing. Uh, and I, I think the past year and a half has uh, revealed to us the complexity, uh, the stress, the anxiety. The particular moment that we're in is so uh, fragmented uh, and the call to discipleship in this particular moment requires a vision that's large enough 
and deep enough to encompass the particular moment that we find ourselves in. Yes, we need uh, the classic uh, practices of discipleship of prayer and reading the Bible and and uh, bearing witness to Christ and, and, and church and all the rest. But discipleship for it to truly impact people in ways that goes beyond the surface, it's one that resists the pull of formational compartmentalization uh, that we find ourselves in. And we require a new, really, paradigm, or a fresh paradigm, at least. In the book, you talk about how we've experienced a shallow formation. Can you talk about a little bit of what that means and maybe how that shallow formation is what we are seeing fall down right now? Yeah, by shallow formation, I'm, I'm talking about a way of life that leaves very little space for interiority, uh, yeah. a formation that often doesn't go beyond behavior modification, doctrinal affirmations, political associations. I mean, it's it's a very thin a- approach. And so to, to go beneath the surface, you know, when I think about the various traditions that I've been shaped by, traditions that I love, traditions that have helped me, um, what I often find is that there tends to be a particular accent so, for example, in the evangelical tradition, I use that in the theological sense of the word, not in the political sense of that word. In the, theolo- in the evangelical tradition, it's often about right thinking. Mm-hmm. And as, as long as you had right thinking and you believe certain things about the divinity of Jesus and about the way of salvation and about something related to the Bible, then you're good to right. go. I mean, you got the right thinking right. or it's right in the Pentecostal tradition where I have spent many years as well, it's right experiences. Do you have the right experience? Whether it's mainline traditions or progressive traditions or traditions that are oriented by justice, are you, is there right action? Are we giving ourselves okay. to the right action in the world? And so it's often right thinking, right experiences, right action. There's often in light of that very little interiority where we're not examining some of the larger issues from a deeper center. It sounds like you're talking about the, I mean, kind of the iceberg uh, metaphor that, you know, I first saw in the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality material, um, you know, talking about how we have so much of our interior life beneath the surface. That metaphor was talking about our emotional reality. And it sounds like you're taking the same metaphor and expanding it to the rest of our inner life, political identity, racial identity, culture, all that stuff. That's absolutely right. I mean, we, there are no icebergs in Queens, but (laughs) we made that image the logo of our church. And it is in many respects, the primary image that we come back to, to talk about whether it's our emotional life, whether it's our political identification the ways that we mm-hmm. navigate. So absolutely right. Right, because we want we want life transformation, and that's not going to be the surface things you've talked about. It's not just do you understand and articulate your doctrine in the right way. Do you have you added the right set of behaviors to your life? Like those are fruit. That's Jesus' metaphor, right? Yeah. Fruit on the tree. So something about the tree, something about the roots, is what needs changed. That's yes. that's where we're headed. And right now in this world, it feels like the roots are missing. The world that we live in the pace is just nonstop. Now, and this is not just, I'm from New York. I'm in the city that never sleeps. And so we're <laughs> accustomed to this, but this is not just a New York phenomenon. There's just a chaotic, frenzied, hurried pace that we live. Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. of this chaotic pace, 
there's very little time to actually take inventory of our own souls, let alone some of the deeper ways that we are to be thinking about some of the more challenging and important issues of our day. In the book, you pick out five particular themes that you're suggesting are kind of an intervention to this, <laughs> to this problem that we're facing. It's the first time right? I've heard we it that get... way, and I like it, Mark. That's the first time I've heard it that way. <laughs> <laughs> we want to get down into the roots or down into the iceberg. Talk us through what these values are and what they're intervening about. Yeah, so the five values that I write about, and uh, yeah. those values are contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. For contemplative rhythms, the intervention is we are living often at a pace that is exhausting and, and leaves mm -hmm. no room for us to catch up to God. And so in order to catch up to God, we need to slow down our lives. That's the paradox of the way of Jesus. The, the intervention for that racial reconciliation chapter is we, we live in a world that's so increasingly fragmented around racial, ethnic lines, and we often don't have formational language to help us navigate mm. this. You know, to talk about race, we have to talk about it on so many levels, theologically, historically, right. sociologically, ecclesiologically, politically. I thought I need to, the intervention is we need to talk formationally. Interior examination, the intervention is we are living often on the surface of our own lives and we're yeah. not taking inventory on what's happening. And so the intervention is Jesus wants to transform all of our lives, especially our interior lives. Right. Uh, sexual wholeness is we, we live in a culture. This is within the church and outside the church that splits souls from bodies as opposed mm -hmm. to seeing the dynamic interplay between the two. And we are to hold these things together. And that missional presence value, really the intervention is we are called to make something of the world. We're not just called to be consumers of the world. We're called to uh, participate with God in the, the creation of something that has uh, yet to be seen in its fullness. That's how I try to, in essence, uh, articulate what I think we, we need individually and collectively. I think the book came out in uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. That means that you were writing it, working on it for two or three years prior to that. So now here we are a year and a half, more than a year and a half into this weird CPR world that you've talked mm -hmm. about. It seems like these five values are maybe even more urgent than they were when you were working on the book. I knew there were problems. That's why I wrote, <laughs> that's why I wrote it. But it does seem like a deepening and an acceleration yeah. of the problems in the past year and a half. You know, we're so wired up to uh, avoid discomfort. Mm. And, and when it comes to church, honestly, what people want from church is to go to church and feel encouraged and hopeful <laughs> and leave church carrying that encouragement into the world that they're in. Right. Right. That's, that's the thing that they, that, that may not be what they need, but it's the thing they want. Yes. And so this acceleration that you speak of, I think part of what has happened is it has accelerated or made more plain 
the discomfort. All of us, all of us that are pastors in the last year and a half have had to rethink how we even do church, like like the or, church or, schedule. Or if the I want to do it. <laughs> right, yes, exactly, exactly. You know, and the expectations that church members have of what church is like, that has changed. How we expect a election to go, that has changed. And how we expect our politicians to talk to each other, that has changed. You know, our expectations of the racial conversation, that has changed. And so all of a sudden, it's like there's this rawness this open mm. discomfort mm-hmm. and that emotional immaturity or emotional unhealth, we just run into all kinds of places to avoid facing that interior discomfort. What the pandemic has revealed uh, in many ways, as you mentioned, beyond just the crisis of discipleship, but particularly related to the crisis of discipleship is the ways that we have not navigated our own interior life in mm. such a way that leads us to being a good gift to our neighbors, even our neighbors Mm -hmm. that we profoundly disagree with. And so the church, instead of the church being a place that demonstrates what is possible when Jesus gets a hold of a community and the kind of compassion and justice and love and humility, uh, what we've seen in the church and our discipleship is in many ways a sad reflection of the world. Right, uh, right. And yes. so what this has most certainly revealed is, yes, that uh, immature, as, as my predecessor would say, that spiritual maturity and emotional maturity are inseparable. One of the things that you that you say in this book is the deeply formed life is not possible without an intentional reordering of our lives. So what I take you to mean by that is that this is not just a change of perspective. Mm. This is not like a new list of five values that I should adopt for my church. Like there's something more tangible that has to happen if this is going to be real. Yeah. What, what I'm trying to get at is the shifts that need to take place in our lives are not just rational shifts, uh, doctrinal shifts, theological mm-hmm. shifts. Uh, I mean, we can make all the different shifts in our lives mentally and theologically and, and it not bear any difference in our lives. Yes, we need theological frameworks to, th- to think through and rethink how we understand the world. But if we just have frameworks without formation, we are uh, still in the same place. What does it mean to reorder our lives around contemplative rhythms? Of slowing down to be with God? What does it mean to reorder our lives around uh, taking inventory of the ways that I've been shaped racially and the invitation to live a more just, reconciled life? Uh, the, the invitation to take inventory of what's happening within my emotional life. Uh, it's a reordering. And, and, and so mm-hmm. it's not just here, check this box. Have you read this book? Have you read this article? It's, it's no. Can we begin to talk about the foundational changes that need to be made? Which is why, Mark, and so, you know, I, I love what you said. Most people come to church to hear good news, to be encouraged. I, I mean, I try to preach encouragement every Sunday. At right. the same time, I tell our congregation that we should have a sign in the front of our church that says, enter at your own risk. Because we are going to invite you to go places and to consider a reordering of our lives that might not feel good, but when has following Jesus been about feeling good? I mean, he said, if you're going to follow me, take up, take up your cross. 
that doesn't feel good. Uh, and right, right, right. Uh, I, I think what I'm trying to do in this reordering is, uh, again, trying to contextualize in some ways what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Okay, so let's let's take one of these values uh, just as an example. So you, the last one you talked about, the racial reconciliation. Let's just go with that yeah. one because that one is troubling for many of us. So when you say that we need to reorder our lives, and that's not just you know reading a book, uh, hearing a podcast, nodding your head and saying, "Yep, things were bad." Like you're you're talking about something practical. So <laughs> unpack that. What does a reordering actually look like in regard to that value? It means a number of things. One of the ways that what it means is for us to actually take conscious, intentional, prayerful inventory of the ways that we have been formed. And so, for example, there's a there's a a tool that I developed called Race, Racism in Our Families. In that, my attempt was to help the congregation begin to identify and not just identify. That's the first step. Begin to now resist. The, the messages, the scripts that we have inherited related to people who don't look like us. And so, for example, how did your family consciously or unconsciously talk about black people? What were the messages that you received about black people, about white people, about East Asian people, South Asian people, Middle Eastern people, Hispanic people, uh, Native American people? What are those messages? Who were you taught to fear? Uh, who were you taught were beneath you? Who were you taught was competent and who was incompetent? Who's dangerous mm -hmm. and who's safe? Unless we are doing that hard work and naming the ways that we've been formed, we're going to have a really hard time imagining something different. And so part of our own formation is taking radical inventory. How have I been shaped in ways that are not in step with the kingdom of God, not in step mm -hmm. with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in step with the way of love? You're not going to get that by just reading a book. It's going to take mm -hmm. within community and intentionality. And Mark, here's what I've discovered. I've led many people in our congregation and outside of it with that simple tool. And to name the messages that we've received is such a difficult, often shameful. It feels shameful mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if people really admit how their family gave them messages about black people or Asian people, Hispanic people across the board there. It's embarrassing. And so no one yeah. wants to do it. And yet this is the way of the cross. We are actually facing, we're, we're living in truth and we're asking the hard questions. And so that's one of the ways, Mark, that I, I think reordering our lives pertains to something like racial justice and reconciliation. So then I'm, I'm going to think this in this example, I'm going to think about my family, people that I care about. Um, I have a, you know, example of that. I, I uh, spent a summer when I was a, a 12, I spent a summer living with my grandmother who lived in Northern Arkansas. My pictures, my memories, my associations of my grandma are wonderful Christmases, you know, the way that she, you know, the specific things that she made, the special dishes that she made, you know, going into, going to her house for holidays, uh, feeling really warm and loved and cared for. I have all those associations. So then I spent the summer with her. And in the course of that summer, what I learned was that she, in a, in a very sort of non-spiteful way, just authentically thought black people weren't as smart as she was. She didn't curse because she was a good church lady. She didn't <laughs> use foul language because she was a teacher at the local Christian school. 
yeah. but just in a in a way that was very matter of fact, like how I would talk about the sky being blue. She just believed black people weren't that smart. And so now I have this tension in my gut over this person that I love, that I have yeah. all these wonderful associations with, that I think was a good, godly person and also mm -hmm. was racist. Mm -hmm. And now I have to look at both sides of that picture. That process is is painful. It is painful, right? And I it, want and, my and people to be good people, right? And and that's part and that's part A. Uh, then part B becomes: How am I perpetuating that in ways that I might not be totally aware of in subtle ways? Yeah, right. So now it becomes grandma, man, what grandma or you know, aunt so and so in Arkansas. What now? The question is: That's really sad. Now, how are the ways that I'm now? participating right. in that and that's the hard work and then what are the counter instinctual acts that i need to now begin to grow into to begin to re-narrate and reorder my life in light of how i've been shaped racially uh by mm -hmm. my family so now i'm i'm moving past thinking about this and reflecting on it now you're you're saying, okay, Mark, you also have to do something with it. What is the, what's the reordering practices? What, what is the thing I'm going to do different if I'm really engaging this conversation? Yeah. In your, in your example, let's go with the example for, uh, uh, first yeah, of all, go. I think it, it requires some level of confession. There is something about externalizing our sins. I mean, this is good Christian tradition stuff here. You know, it's, right, confession right. is good for our soul and confession roots us in love. Uh, and if we're yeah. able to name certain things that have been strongholds in our lives, we begin to free those things from the, the power it's had over us. You know, whatever we cannot name, we're a slave to. Uh, and so I think it begins mm -hmm. with confession. This is what I have been living with, caring. And then in that case there, you know, I, I do think part of it now, in this case, we're just taking a very individualistic approach to addressing yes. something. And so I think to talk about racism needs to be talked about in individual, interpersonal, and institutional ways. But let's just stick with the individual lens for a second. How much do I need to pay attention to the various faulty messages that arise in a given day? Mark, you're at the doctor's office and someone walks in and you see it's a black uh, woman who walks into the doctor's office and your first thought or the hospital, wherever you're at, your first thought is this can't be the doctor uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, black people, black women can't be doctor, whatever faulty message we have or black people can't be a good doctor. Right. So this can't be the doctor. Right. And now you're asking yourself, you're, you're taking inventory. What is that about? You're yeah. confessing that you're praying, you're asking the Lord to forgive. You, and then, by God's grace, you're opening yourself up uh, and moving towards someone mm -hmm. uh, that in the past you might have regarded as some intellectually inferior or whatever it might be. Right, so right. I think that's one of the ways that we, if we play out a scenario like that, but this is a lifelong journey uh, yeah. requiring us to take note on, uh, notes on ourselves and subsequently uh, identifying what are the counter instinctual habits actions that's required of me and it differs from scenario to scenario you mentioned you know that you we were talking about a, an individualized example and that this also needs to be sort of a larger conversation mm. communities and systems okay your book is about values 
that I think you're not just proposing for individual Christians, they're coming out of your church community. And I think you're proposing that this needs to be a community conversation. So what mm-hmm. does that look like in a church community? Uh, number one, understanding the power dynamics. Uh, we, we want to be more than just what we call a sanctified subway car in which we get a group of anonymous, diverse people in close proximity to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, as someone said, uh, plantations are diverse as well. You know, so we're not trying right. to be... Uh, just this sanctified subway car. Part of that is how do, who's making decisions? Who's shaping the community? Whose fears are we paying attention to? Which values okay. are we highlighting? And, and I don't know if that happens unless there are diverse people in the room at various levels of power and influence and authority. And so in our church, for example, you know, on every level, it's now, granted, it's a very diverse church. Yet at the same time, we have worked hard and intentional to ensure that at every level of our community, there is diversity and shared power. And who, whose stories are we listening to? What are the fears that we're paying attention to? What are the values that we're prioritizing? And so that's really related to identity, you know, who we are, what we look like. But then on another level, it's a mission. What are we giving ourselves to? As, as a congregation, we have worked hard over 30 years to pay attention to the racialized world that we live in and to try to be uh, a witness that in the name of Jesus, a new possibility, is, a new racial possibility is, is before us. Uh, yes. And so what does this look like? Our engagement with our local community. Uh, right now, you know, what are we, we're not just involved in evangelism. We're not just trying to preach the gospel and get people to make an individual decision. We're asking ourselves, what are, where are there points of, inequity? Where are the points of uh, disproportionate resources? So for example, right now, uh, you know, our church is involved with a group of other communities within our neighborhood addressing affordable housing uh, in a community Mm -hmm. in which gentrification is taking over. Uh, for, For us, this is an issue of justice, of racial justice. This is part of our discipleship. This is part, you know, does God care about our, our souls or our bodies? The answer is yes. We're saying this yes. is a holistic yes. gospel uh, that we're trying to uh, live out. And so whether it's individually, interpersonally, institutionally, as a congregation, we have tried to work through all this. And it's hard because mm-hmm. these are massive issues before us. Uh, and we realize we're not going to solve most of these problems, but by God's grace, maybe we can touch a few. And uh, as we work together, uh, try to see something of the kingdom of God become more of a reality within our local spaces. In the book, you have a chapter for each of these values, and that chapter is followed by a chapter that is practices. That structure by itself says something because it says it's not enough to think these thoughts. It's not enough to agree with a perspective. It's not enough for Mark to just acknowledge that his grandmother was racist, Mm -hmm. right? There's, there's a deeper thing that needs to happen. That thing involves personal reflection, community reflection, but also has to show up in tangible actions. I just didn't want to give theological frameworks for people to say, well, I believe that, or that's insightful, and I've read the book, and you know what? Maybe I'll read it again if I have to teach on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. for, for me, it was how can this be a resource 
to guide people into a new way of being in the world. And so very intentional to offer. I love theology. It's not that I'm anti. I love theology. I I want theology to have flesh on it. Uh, I want it to be livable. Uh, I I want, you know, Jesus prays your kingdom come, your will be done. That there is, I I just don't want to think about it. I want to be about it. Uh, And so the practices are really trying to orient our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our relationships into a new way of being. Yeah, because it's very often that in doing things, our minds become conscious of and aware of the implications. Mm-hmm. You know, we we very often live our way into theology. Yes. Uh, even though we like to think we thought our way into it, it's right. it's the practices that actually shape us. And, yes. and maybe that's part of the crisis of this moment, that we're seeing the church engaged in practices, mm-hmm. that when you look at these practices pastorally, you're like, that practice isn't taking you closer to Jesus. Like that, that is headed off a cliff. That practice yes. has to shift. And you're right. I mean, it, it comes to a point where I think the more, the more I give myself to contemplative prayer, the more now my body starts. So it's not as my body starts craving it. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah, that's such a big deal. I, um, a couple times a year, go down to a Benedictine Abbey that's about an hour from where I live. And um, I just did this a couple uh, last week, actually, for two days to go down and just disconnect from all the obligations, spend some time in silence, mm. you know, follow the hours, be in a place that the focus is interiority. And what I noticed as I drive onto the campus is I can feel in my body a shift. I can feel I've done it enough times now yes. that just driving onto the campus, I feel the tone of my muscles and the presence of my mind shift. Like some of that pressure, some of those obligations, some of the performance that I constantly live in and all the other areas of my life doesn't belong here. Mm. And I feel it. I feel it in me in a way that's not intellectual at all. It's, it's in my body. Now this is music to my ears, Mark, because I mean, I, I go to a Benedictine uh, monastery in the Boston area usually every year. And mm-hmm. that's exactly my experience. I'm there as I'm driving up. First of all, it feels like a pilgrimage every time I'm, I'm going there. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to meet God. I'm not just going on yeah. a little trip here, a little vacation. It's I'm going to meet the living God and something in my body adjusts to it. The question that I wrestle with, and this is why I've needed rhythms of this, is how do I carry this with me when mm-hmm. I'm back into the day-to-day operations of the world and right. taking the kids to school and getting dinner and grocery shopping? I have to, by God's grace, I need times to go up the mountain. And for me, going up the mountain is monastery, is silence, is mm. retreats. And, and then come back down and then realize soon enough, I better go back up again because it's right. just so easy to be dragged down by the pace and the priorities and the values of this world. Well, it's almost like that, that what happens on the mountain is that you get to practice something that your normal life structure would mediate against. Mm-hmm. And the more you practice it, the more you can bring it into your normal life structure. Yes. Right. Like, like that, I think what, I think what you're saying is, you know, contemplative rhythm shouldn't be a special event. 
It should be a normal way of living. Racial reconciliation shouldn't be an annual conference. It should be your attitude toward <laughs> yes. the people around you. Interior examination shouldn't be something that you're doing just you know, at your therapist's office. It should mm -hmm. be a daily practice. It should be your response to watching yourself live. Sexual wholeness, that's not you know, something that just happens in certain places. You should be thinking about the body that God made you in and the bodies that God made everyone else in and the dignity mm. that those bodies have and how to yes. relate to everybody's bodies in that way. You know, missional presence isn't an evangelistic event. It's a, it's a way of engaging the world. And so now we're moving from values, which could easily be interpreted as sort of ideals that we put up mm -hmm. on the plaque. Right. Now we're bringing that down to the actual woven fabric of the minutes of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mark is beautiful. You should take that clip right there and I don't know, put that everywhere. That's, that's, you distilled <laughs> it beautifully. And the question, I think when I read the Bible, I think this was Eugene Peterson's, he believed that what the Bible said was it was livable. That's what mm -hmm. concerned him. Is this livable? It's not just, is this thinkable? Is this livable? And for me, that's the hope. Not just that yes. we're just thinking about new ways of being a Christian but that we're living into new ways of what it means to follow Jesus. The call to discipleship requires a vision that is large enough to encompass the moment we find ourselves in. Did you hear Rich say that? Now, whether you agree with the five values that Rich is proposing and the way that he articulated them, it seems like he's really onto something. The discipleship of many Christians over the last generation is so thin, so brittle, and often exclusionary. It seems not to be able to handle much discomfort. And that's a problem, because the gospel is just the opposite of that. One reason I resonate with Rich's five values is that they help us, in his words, resist the pull of formational compartmentalization. That's a great phrase, right? That's when our Christianity only impacts certain narrow compartments of our lives. These values give us practical ways to have our faith shape every part of our lives, how we see our bodies and the bodies of other people, how we relate to our community and the politics necessary to govern ourselves in a pluralistic world, how we think about race, how we think about our own identity. We're not Christians because we believe certain abstract ideas about God and the world. We're Christians because we follow the way of Jesus, the way, how we live, how we relate, how we engage others, all of that matters. This is the goal for spiritual maturity, that we would push beyond inflexible intellectual definitions and into a gracious love, an other-centered, co-suffering love. One more quote from Rich. The deeply formed life is not possible without an intentional reordering of our lives. Think about that. Do you have space for interiority? Is your faith deeper than behavioral modification, doctrinal affirmation, and political affiliation? Does the pace of your life allow for this kind of deep reflective faith? Or does the rush keep you skating on the surface? Does your faith enable you to be a good gift to your neighbors? Even the neighbors you disagree with? May you push deeper than a surface religion into the depths of interior faith that can overflow into every aspect of your life, making you more gracious, more loving, and more and more like Jesus. Thanks for listening.
Notes for today's episode and any links that have been mentioned, you can find at markallenshelsky.com forward slash TAW047. Was that helpful? Did you enjoy that? Did it make you think? Then subscribe to my email list. Two emails a month at most. Frankly, you usually only get one. Uh, That email will contain links to my writing, the next podcast episode, books that I'm reading and would like to recommend to you. And if you opt in to receive it, you'll get a free little PDF book that I wrote called The Anchor Prayer, a prayer and practice for remaining grounded in a chaotic world. In it, I teach this short spiritual practice that has been absolutely essential for me as I face the anxiety and uncertainty of our time and some deeply anxious things I'm facing in my own personal life and health. So this practice has been helpful to me. I want to share it with you. Subscribe and get the book at www.markoptin.com. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.